Canucks Central Monday. Stan Richo. And Orthotics Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Yes, after a uh, week away, I am uh, back here on Canuck Central. What did I miss, Sat? How many hypothetical trades did we have last week with you and Bick on the show? At least 67. At least. <laughs> because you were in Toronto, we did one for uh, the last year. The Leafs won the Stanley Cup. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, you were paying homage. It's a lot of years. Yeah, a lot of years. A lot of years. <laughs> yeah, a lot of hypotheticals, but none have been conceived yet. So that's that's what we're at. We're, we're deep into off-season talk, despite the fact the Stanley Cup finals have begun. Yeah, Vegas uh, getting the win in Game 1 Saturday. We'll have Game 2 tonight for you on Sportsnet 650. Puck drop coming after 5 o'clock Pacific. It's uh, it's a good Game 1, and I'm imagining it's going to be a good series the whole way through. We'll get into some of the storylines with that, but of course, there are more with the Vancouver Canucks to get to. As we get closer and closer to the offseason, there is some discussion about where the Canucks are going to go with their off season. Mm-hmm. That's what we're always talking about, really. <laughs> and there's, you know, when we talked to Patrick Alvin after the season sat, you know, we asked him about free agency and he said, right now the plan is to not really dabble in free agency. And how could they because of their salary cap situation? But I guess the wonder is if they are able to, open up cap space, trade a Garland or a Besser or however they go about doing it, does that then change their idea of being able to go out and work in free agency? I mean, I I think if they could clear enough cap space, I think it becomes easier for them to make an acquisition via free agency as opposed to trying to go and make another trade to acquire the type of player they're looking for. Because... when you're looking to move cap space out, it's probably going to cost you something, it looks like, right? Unless you do something different than Garland or Besser or My- or Myers or anything, it's going to look looks to be costing you something at the moment. So if you're paying something to get rid of money, and then you got to pay something to acquire a player, then now we're getting into you paying a lot to get better, right? You're paying a lot of different assets to try to get better. So I'm not quite sure that's ultimately something that's going to work out for them the way they would like to. So I think it's easier for them, if they clear cap space, to sign a couple of free agents they have their sights on. And you wonder what free agents they might be after. We've talked about third-line centers. There are some options out there for that. But in a team that's constantly figuring out how they're going to get better on defense, will they take mm-hmm. a look at some of those players? And Elliot Friedman was on with Donnie and Dolly earlier today, and he had a theory about Damon Severson. Here's the clip. Well, I, I mean, they can get involved. There's no question about it. Like, it's, it's clear to me that New Jersey is weighing what to do here yeah. and uh, that, you know, that they're in a situation where they are, are preparing to for the possibility of trading is right. So absolutely, they can call and, and they can see what they want to do. I, I think Severson would be very happy playing in a market like Vancouver. But as you said, it's it's a difficult fit. You're going to have to clear cap space. And uh, if if they can do that, then I think he absolutely would be interested in a place like Vancouver. But as you said, Rick, they're going to have to clear the room first. 
So Damon Severson would be interested in a place like Vancouver. It's just a matter of the Canucks being able to open up some kind of cap space. And, you know, one of the things about um, where the Canucks are with their defense, mm-hmm. it's like even if they do trade a Garland or a Besser or magically move some money off the books from their heavy forward group, they're still paying too much money on D sat. Yeah. Now I know, you know, maybe you eventually trade Myers and he's coming off the books next year. So can you just swallow it for one year? I guess so, but it's, it's already a very expensive defense. And that's, that's why I'm just so shy about dabbling at all in any significant free agent on the back end. And you're right. How are you going to add a player like Damon Severson, who is projected by by some projections to be making as much as $6 million in his upcoming contract? You know, he's a 28-year-old defenseman, righty defenseman, uh, who can move the puck, create a little bit of offense, is good defensively. He has a lot of things going for him. What do players like that get paid in free agency? A lot of money. I mean, let's say that that projection is overstating things. It's at least going to be five times five, right? Five and a half million, at least. At the, and it's probably going to be even more than that, given how thin the free agent market is. So how are you going to add a player worth six million by just moving Garland out? Because moving Garland out, is, or a player making five million, it only gives you enough cap space to fill out your roster, essentially. Right? Like maybe yeah. at a third line center, you sign a couple of players that you got to bring back. And next thing you know, now you have 23 players. Now you can dip into LTIR. And I guess you can always operate under the assumption that you have five and a half million that's going to open up for you that way. So maybe if you feel you can maybe squeeze one free agent signing in, but just moving a $5 million contract out, I don't think is going to create enough money for you to address not only third line center, but then add a player like Damon Severson. Yeah, so you're gonna have to do a lot more, and, and that's that's really where this this all stands. You know, how do you manage to fix this and that and all of these things when you don't have any cap savings and when you don't have any room, any flexibility up against the salary cap? That's the the job that Patrick Alvine has to figure out. But Garland alone doesn't maybe fix that. You maybe have to think of Garland and Besser or Garland and Myers, who's just a recent gold medalist at the World Championship, so maybe the trade value is a little bit up, but still unlikely. It's, you didn't see it's how a very he, difficult equation. His leadership was pivotal in uh, Canada winning the <laughs> was, gold medal. It was huge. Really, it's debatable whose <laughs> who's trade value went up more, his or, or Ethan Bear. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just... The more I think about it, the more it's just... It, it feels pipe dream. To me, to, to to be able to dabble in these areas, I know this this front office is as long as they're able to open up cap space, they're going to go out and spend it. I don't doubt that. It's just I I don't see how they're going to be able to get that level of a free agent in here. No, and you know I was on uh, the Daily Faceoff live show today with Frank Cervelli, and we'll chat with Frank coming up in a bit here on the show. But one of the things I brought up, and we've discussed this before, I mean, for all this talk about Canucks clearing cap space, clearing cap space, sort of go out and sign this free agent, go out and sign that free agent. And, and if you if you do clear the space, the path to least resistance is signing a free agent. It's easier to control, right? You go and sign a guy instead of trying to make a trade. And sometimes that comes at a cost down the road, especially in free agency, of course. But... I don't think you can get there with 
how Vancouver is set up right now. It seems like a pipe dream, like you mentioned, for them to clear enough space to be a big player in free agency. Now, if they have something up their sleeve, like Alvin kind of alluded to, then we'll sit here and applaud them in about four weeks' time and talk about how, man, they really pulled a, a rabbit out of a bag, right? Now, if they don't do that, though, isn't the more likely route to make some quote-unquote hockey trades here? You know, for all this talk, like the Canucks are trying to get better, right, Dan? And yeah. there's an ideal way to get better, and then there's the practical, realistic way to get better. And isn't that going to be the more likely scenario here where the Canucks make trades for players on their roster, for other players making money who can maybe address their needs? And that's really what makes the most sense. Is there a fit somewhere out there? That's maybe the bigger question mark. You know, how do you go about finding that fit, finding a player that fits your need more than where Garland is right now at his four nine five cap hit. Those are the types of questions. Those are the types of people you're going to have to put on the whiteboard and try to figure out if mm-hmm. there is a fit with another team. Yeah. And that's going to be the thing. And I see people bringing up, you know, Tyler Myers too. Like, how do you move that money out? Because I think he's a player you could actually move in a trade, you know, like we, we keep talking about, Hey, when the bonus gets paid out, maybe they trade and get off the entire contract perhaps, but Maybe he's a guy you make a straight swap with for somebody else. You right. know, and is that something that becomes a lot easier for you, for instance? And those are the types of things I don't think have been discussed enough. And I think they're harder to come by that information because teams are going to have to leak, hey, we've talked trade via for this player. And these are the things we we're talking about in terms of being available for you. But I think that's going to have to be one of the solutions they make here is convincing players, maybe with no movement clauses, maybe they have to that we have a fit elsewhere for you. And I don't know. I, I think if you look around the league, there are a lot of teams that are motivated to make those types of trades. And Myers, mm-hmm. for instance, and a player like him may not be very appealing with the bonus getting paid. But if you're taking something back, if you're making a trade, then maybe it's not going to be as onerous for that team to swallow that contract. That's um, like with Myers too. Going and getting to the trade deadline, he probably becomes a higher value asset. You know, at that point, there's basically no cash on the books, and it's just a rental contract. Hey, team going to add a six foot seven defenseman on the right side for the playoff push? Could be interesting. Could be a player the Canucks would want to keep in that scenario, given uh, what we're seeing from Vegas and how their big mobile defense is really having success in the playoffs right now. It's there's a lot of puzzle pieces here, mm-hmm. and I don't know how they go about fixing all of it at once. But the problem is the salary situation. And we've talked about it a thousand times. They painted themselves into this corner as soon as they made the Philip Aronic trade. It was their decision to go and do that and put themselves in this position. Maybe they had a thought that the salary cap was going to increase going back a few months. But now we hear from Gary Bettman over the weekend, Sat, and it's just going to be the $1 million. Don't, it's don't, likely to be just the $1 million. I don't believe anything that comes out of Gary Bettman's mouth when it comes to the salary cap right now. Oh, really? Not so you're, you're more inclined thing. to believe Alan Walsh than, uh, than, than Gary Bettman? I'm more inclined to believe that Gary Bettman also understands the value of the salary cap going up and that he's trying to squeeze something out of the PA. And he just wants something out of him, whatever that is, right? Yeah. And... I think ultimately he'll get it because the players want it. The league wants it. And maybe it's something small at the end of it, Like, but he wants something. The way these guys operate, it's laughable, right? Because it's so transparent and they try to act like it's not transparent. It's transactional. He wants a transactional 
payout for making this move. That, that's how these yeah. guys operate at this standard, right? Like he's not going to just let something happen without getting something back in return. And, and perhaps it'll be something relatively meaningless in the end that they can just kind of tell the owners that, hey, we got this in, in, in exchange of, of doing that. But how many teams and owners would benefit from the salary cap going up a little bit? So why wouldn't they want that? Almost all of them. Yeah. And I mean, if the projections are correct that you're only $70 million out of paying it, and next year's revenues are going to skyrocket. Aren't you better off smoothing it out a little bit by having a say three two million increase this year, or two and a half, or three, or whatever, just more than one million? And then next year, instead of having a seven eight million dollar jump, you have a three or four million dollar jump. Like, does That's it make logical? Doesn't doesn't make more sense to to hand free agents an extra uh, hand general managers an extra seven million in cap space next year, or kind of smooth that out over two years? Like logically, it's funny. look at it. Like Marty Walsh has already got a, a fight on his hand with uh, with Gary Bettman over this very topic, and we'll see how he handles it. The new uh, NHLPA director, uh, Marty Walsh, but when you think about the salary cap, it absolutely should go up more than the one million dollars, and it, maybe it should go up more than the one million dollars given those projections that we're seeing. Like, hey, you're going to be paid off the escrow no matter what next year. Let's just make sure that this happens right now. The players benefit from that teams that are right up against the salary cap would get some relief there. But I I guess the wonder is, do the Canucks benefit more than others because of where they are at that they have negative cap space technically right now without any LTIR usage. It just, it, it feels like, you know, people go to the cap friendly page and they look and they're like, oh, the Canucks are spending the most money and they're not a good hockey team. How does this even happen? Uh, how much of this is hyperbole about their cap situation and how much of it is an overreaction to just looking at our resources to see how the salary cap is, is shaking out right now? It's not an overreaction. It's just a, it, it's a reality. They, they understand where it's yep. at. Now, they may have things like they've alluded to, like I said before, that they think they can squeeze some stuff out here and, and make it work. That's what they've been alluding to, and we'll find out soon enough, right? And if that's the case, then perhaps. And I do think a lot of teams are operating under the assumption the cap's going to go up a, a little bit more, right? And if the Canucks are sure, uh, say, um, Pearson and Pullman will be on LTIR all season long. Well, then they have enough money to, to sign Bear back and fill out their roster. And if they move Garland out and those guys stay on LTIR all year and you get, say, $2 million or $3 million in cap space, extra cap space, then all of a sudden you can be a player in free agency, right, if you move one player out. Then, then that can happen. And perhaps it is as simple as that, as we mentioned before. Like, It's just given what the league is looking like right now, there's going to be a cost associated with this. There's an easy way of doing anything. I think they can create cap space. The question is, can they get it at a cost that's easy to digest? Because they're going to have to give something out to be able to clear that space. Yeah, and I think it's huge for the Canucks if they were to get that little bit of an extra kick, right? Because as we just mentioned... You know, even trading away a Connor Garland and not having to take back any salary back, if that situation were to play out, you're still not left with a ton of flexibility. You're filling out your roster, and then you'll find out how much left over you have. Can you add another significant piece with that? There's a question mark there. So if you get that little bit of an extra addition to the salary cap via it going up more than just the $1 million that is projected, now maybe you have a little bit more flexibility and every dollar counts for this team right now with their situation. So 
this is kind of a big deal for the Vancouver Canucks to see where this all goes. I wonder just how uh, stringent Gary Bettman will be with this negotiation. We'll talk to uh, Frank Saravalli about this a little bit more coming up after 3.30. Now, I, I do want to get to a lot of things about the Stanley Cup Finals, and we will later as we get into Game 2 after 4.30, but a couple of big things happened with some undersized wingers today in the National Hockey League today, Sat. Cole Caulfield signed a mega eight-year, $62.8 million extension with the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, the kid scores goals for fun, so I can understand it, um, even after the shoulder injury that he had. But we're seeing another smallish forward who does also score goals at quite a high clip, but has a $9 million QO. And I feel like there's going to be some hesitation to paying big in trade for an Alex to at after we hear today that the uh, Ottawa Senators are exploring the trade market for a pending UFA after next season. Yeah. And the question I have, are they going to be able to get back what they paid to acquire him for, for all yeah. the talk about, Hey, um, Chicago didn't get enough for Alex to it. It was a seventh overall pick, the 39th overall pick, a second round pick and a third round pick. That looks pretty good, doesn't it? Like we we talk about trade value now, like a seventh overall pick and a thirty ninth overall pick. That that's pretty good. If I if I do remember correctly, Sat, you were you were saying you were one of the few saying that it was uh, pretty fair value. Yeah, I mean you got top like people act like a seventh overall pick isn't good value. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> the seventh overall pick. What are we what are we talking about here? Top ten picks don't get traded very often. It, it's very valuable. Yeah. And to top it off, you how got many a high wingers second. are getting traded for a top ten pick? Well, exactly. And you got a high second round pick plus a third, which is essentially the value of a late first round pick. So you got a you know a top ten pick plus a late first round pick in value. Essentially, that's pretty good. I think that's pretty mm-hmm. good return, and I'm not sure Ottawa's going to get that back in return right now. So what are they going to look at? The winger market has crashed, right? As good as Dabrinkit is, he's also staring at a massive contract. Is he getting more he than Timo Meyer? Yeah. In return? I mean, I don't think so. Because Meyer at least because has two years of control. Or Meyer had uh, the extra control. Yeah. He also had, or he has, the... Note that he is one of the top power forwards in the league. Yes. And whether Alex Dabrinkit likes it or not, whether it's fair or not, you know, he's a guy who scores a ton on the power play. And there's always going to be some question marks, whether they're right or wrong. Is this one of those types of players that you can win with in the playoffs? Because he is undersized. Now, goals are always hard to come by. I'm always interested mm-hmm. in, in finding players that can score me goals because they're very hard to get. And you tend to have to pay a lot for them. But is Alex Dabrinkat going to be 40-plus goal Alex Dabrinkat? Or is he going to be more of a 30-goal type like we saw uh, less than 30 goals this year mm-hmm. with the Ottawa Senators? Like, he, picked a, he picked a bad time to have a down season. He did. And I the mean, Senators are going to pay for it now. Yeah, the Sens are going to pay for it. And he might pay for it in terms of... I mean, it depends, right? Like, it depends on if he signs... If he only signs a one-year deal which I don't think he's going to do, right? Then you can have a big year and you set yourself up, but he's probably going to pay for it somewhat when it comes to his salary as well. Like he was probably hoping he's going to be a guy who gets paid, you know, nine plus million. That may not be in the cards for him, but you're still talking about a winger who's going to be commanding at least close to $8 million in in salary. 
it's hard because um, like Pasternak got all the money, but I mean it's Pasternak. He's David Pasternak. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like you play but, like David Pasternak, then it doesn't matter. When a guy like Matthew Kachuk is even after the season he had last year with Calgary gets traded to Florida and takes nine and a half per year, right? It's tough for a guy like Debrinkat to go out there and be like, "I'm worth more than nine million. Well, Better I mean, pay up." You know, does 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 this make any sense to you, Debrinkat for Marner? Ooh, I think I'd rather have Marner. No, I I don't I don't I don't disagree, but it's also eleven million. Yep. And a guy. So who, the downgrade in salary is worth. Is that worth the trade? I mean, is that what you're looking at if you're Ottawa, for instance? Because if you're looking at making a trade, I mean, if you're willing to take a loss on the assets you gave up, great. I mean, sure, go and make a trade. You know, get a first round pick back this year because you traded theirs to get Alec, to get uh, Jacob Chikrin, of course. So they can make a trade like that, but I doubt they're getting a top ten pick. Yeah. Right. So is that something you're looking to do as an organization after everything you gave up and you're trying to win that you're punting for lower draft value? It would have to be a, a hockey type deal they they explore, isn't it? Do they explore somebody where they're like, hey, RFA for RFA or young player for young player guy in, in a in a situation where that might be somewhat tenuous? That would be be my guess right now about Alex DeBrinkett. And you know, we'd love to make it about Vancouver. I just don't I just don't see the fit with Vancouver to make any type of swap like that. Yeah, it uh, doesn't really add up for the like, Vancouver. Like Garland or Besser doesn't quite make sense. You know what I mean? Like as much as nope. Debrinket's value has gone down, I don't think that's going to get it done. You know? Uh, well, Debrinket for JT Miller. <laughs> sure, but how are the Canucks <laughs> getting their center? Right? Yeah. Because the salary is getting shifted. So you're not getting any cap space. You got to pay Debrinket close to whatever JT's getting paid. You're not getting any assets you can flip for a centerman. So. You know what are we looking at there? It just it just does it's not a fit. I will say if we get more blockbuster trades this summer, I am uh, willing to praise both Brad Treliving and Bill Zito for their work last summer with the uh, Huberto Uyghur and Matthew Kachuk deal. Yeah, you know what else is going to help the trade market? The salary cap going up, Gary. <laughs> Stopping such a snake. That's what Gary Bevan does. That's all he knows how to do. Is uh, snake his way to more assets for the NHL to use against the players? Well, he's too busy trying to bring, bring Atlanta back to the NHL. <laughs> yes, third time's a charm. That'll work. And keeping the Arizona Coyotes. Yeah, I have a hot take about about that. Well, I'll share it one day. Not today. Today's not the okay. day. I'm like, the, have you seen the not, show Silo? Yes. Today's actually not the no. Day. I have. No, you haven't I watched lied. it. It's good. It's just worth watching. Check it out. Yeah, <laughs> I've been uh, knee deep in uh, succession binges. But, did you finish? Uh, did you finish good. Succession? I did. You did. Yeah. What did you think? It was brilliant. You thought so? You liked the ending? I love the ending. Mm. Okay. All right. <laughs> Guess you not so much. I mean, I don't think you needed. I don't think we needed to spend two and a half hours on the last two episodes. <laughs> Didn't make any sense. Uh, fair enough. A discussion for when I'm uh, back in town yeah. in Vancouver in between the breaks. Uh, coming up, Frank Saravalli joins us. Our Monday Hockey Insider coming up on Canuck Central. Get smarter when you listen to Hockey Talk, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you. And joining us as he does every Monday here on the program, it is Frank Saravalli. He is a presentation of Angry Otter Liquor. You check out his work at Daily Faceoff, and he joins us every Monday. What's happening, Frank? Hello, boys. Getting ready for game two? I am uh, all set. Uh, looking forward to it. This uh, game one was pretty good. Let's hope for more uh, quality games uh, through this uh, Stanley Cup final. And, you know, I think, um, you know, there's obviously uh, a big Southern feel to it. The the heat of Las Vegas, the hype of Las Vegas. And here's this uh, startup Florida Panthers team that nobody expected to be here. But after that game one, despite that Aiden Hill save, it mm-hmm. just it feels like Vegas is to lose for me, even going into the series. Yeah, I can understand that feeling. And and look, there was a certain aspect to what and how Florida played that it, it sort of felt like they were lost a little bit. And it's not necessarily, you know, part of it was the moment. Part of it was they lost their cool. Part of it, too, is my concern about this Florida team with a 10-day layoff was would Sergei Bobrovsky turn into a pumpkin again? Mm-hmm. Like, he had spent... 38 days to start the playoffs essentially playing unconscious hockey in a rhythm every other day what were the odds that after 10 days off he'd go back to the same guy that he's been for the last number of years which is just an okay goalie in this league that makes 10 million bucks he has the pedigree of course but to see him come out and allow four for the first time since the first round like didn't exactly shock me no, and that wasn't shocking. And you know what? I will actually say, I thought the way Florida kind of punched back after losing their cool a little bit and, and kind of how they played in that second and, and, and at times even in the third period, I actually didn't mind how they played. I thought, you know, I can I think they have a pathway of controlling the game at least better than I thought they could in some ways. But you're right. It really just comes down to Bobrovsky in this series at this stage because we can look at Aiden Hill all we want, but overall, the quality of scoring chances, you know that... Vegas isn't going to give it up to that high degree. Well, that's part of it for one. And they also just lost the chaos battle in front of, um, in front of the Vegas net in Mm -hmm. front of Aiden Hill. There was way more going on in front of Sergei Bobrovsky that, you know, you see two goals from defensemen with the screens and traffic that they scored upon. Like that's going to be problematic if Florida can't clean it up in their own end. Where has their defense scoring been by the way? That's nine consecutive games. Um, when you look at Brandon Montour not registering a point after his also unconscious start to this the playoffs. So, uh, look, there's a lot of things that, that are kind of changing on the fly as this goes on. And part of it is just Vegas is a good team. Like, they've sort of been written off at varying turns. Before the season even started, people were saying, you can't win with Logan Thompson and Nett. And then it was, well, they win their division, but people look at them and say, eh, they're not as good as Edmonton. And every point that they've gotten to, people have sort of cast dispersions on them and their roster, and they just get the job done. And it's a mix of high-end skill. It's a mix of depth. um, And it's also a really, for the most part, disciplined approach. There's uh there's there's a lot of talk about Vegas's defense right now, their decor. And if we uh, rewind it back a couple of months ago, the uh, Vegas Golden Knights were playing the Vancouver Canucks and coming out of that game. All Rick Tockett could do was talk about how 
good Vegas's defense is and how much he appreciated their size and their ability to move the puck and their mobility. And, you know, it's been one of their big storylines through the playoffs. I mean, it's easier said than done to go out and build a decor like that, but it almost feels like, uh, I, I don't know, is it a comeback for size on the back end uh, with this uh, the run that Vegas is on? Honestly, I, I think that's been one of the underreported stories of the last few years is that size on the back end is what wins. Like you look at my, my co-host on, on the DFO rundown, Jason Greger has like literally been beating this drum for years talking about you need size on your back end to win. It, just talking to some other GMs, there's one in the Western conference who says all the time it's trees, not shrubs that wins. <laughs> So that's that's his big thing is like make sure that you have enough big guys on your back end that can do the job when it when push comes to shove in the postseason. It may not be quite as mobile, quite as pretty at times in the regular season, but I think that's sort of the push and pull between regular season and postseason of you've got to be able to build a team that gets through the regular season and makes it to the postseason, but you need to have one that's playoff ready once you get there. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, like, I know we've had this discussion so many different times, and we discussed this this morning on your sh- your show as well, Frank, that, you know, a guy like Tyler Myers, you can say everything you want about him and his issues, but he's a player that teams around the league like for the reasons you just mentioned. Come playoff time, mm-hmm. we even saw it here. You know, there is, a uh, outside of taking some bad penalties, he was very effective in certain cases, and especially against a guy like Alex Tuck against Vegas. So there's stuff there that you can see be applicable to the playoffs, but it comes down to that money. The question for me is, do teams look at, players like him and say we're willing to pay a premium based on what's happened this season or we're more willing to perhaps pay the price it would take to get that type of player I don't know necessarily a premium but there certainly would be interest for sure um and and Dan I don't want you to be jealous but I had sat on my show today and we did talk about Tyler Myers I'm definitely jealous and you should be and then (laughs) that was really kind of one of the things that we were talking about was you could trade him once this you know, signing bonus is paid in September and it's a huge five out of the six million he's owed are taken off the books and, and you eat it. One, I don't really understand why that's palatable from a Canucks perspective, just budgetary wise. Um, why would you sort of pay him to play somewhere else? I, I understand the cap flexibility part of it, but I think there's probably better ways to do it. So that's one part of it. The second part is what is the Canucks mission and mandate this year? My belief is, and I think everyone sort of universally holds this as they watch the, everything unfold, is the Canucks don't really have any interest in trying to do anything but be competitive and try and make the playoffs. So then that brings us to the third point, which Sat was alluding to, which is, well, if things don't go according to plan and if the Canucks su- somehow are not in contention to make the playoffs and you know with enough lead time all of a sudden he becomes an insanely attractive uh, deadline piece when it comes to the postseason because for one you've already paid the bonus so the real cash is low you have the ability then to retain half on the salary and juice the return and and more to that point what you guys were just talking about with his size someone is definitely going to be interested and he might be more valuable to someone else than he would be to any Canucks playoff push. So I, I think it makes sense to hold rather than fold. 
Yeah, and it feels like that's where it's going to go with with Tyler Myers. And I, I, the question, you know, we've talked about a lot already with the Canucks, um, you know, and thinking about Gary speaking over the weekend about just having the salary cap go up by a million bucks rather than anything more than that for now. Um, what would the Canucks even do if they were to open up cap space? Could you see the Canucks being a player in free agency for a Damon Severson or somebody on the back end? Should they be able to open up some cap space this summer? I'd, I don't think so. I would be surprised. I think if anything, they would leverage the cap space that they have to make other trades, maybe find um, a distressed asset somewhere that they think they can rehab, maybe um, sort of mine a diamond in the rough, if that makes any sense, rather than paying top dollar for someone on the free agent market who I really like Severson. I think he's a nice piece to have in your top four. I don't think I'd go out and go crazy to spend for him based on where the Canucks are at in their competitive cycle. Like I think Severson is one of those guys that helps, you know, sort of put you over the top and is a missing piece, a missing link to being, you know, going from playoff team to cup contender. Um, So a nice accessory piece, but not a driver, so to speak. And that's, those are important guys, but where the Canucks are at, like try and find someone you can trade for, especially like you'd want, not to say Severson's old by any stretch of the imagination, but Mm -hmm. you'd want someone in that 25, 24 range that can continue to grow and build with your team. Sort of like, you know, obviously a bit younger is the Philip Hironic deal. And you can start to make sense of that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, if you're paying Hironic and like we talked about, like say 8 million in a year or seven and a half million in a year's time, you got Quinn Hughes at close to 8 million. OEL's contract's not going anywhere. It just doesn't make sense to add another guy making 6 million plus to fill a role for you, right? Like you, you kind of have to have a better budget on your back end, but ultimately we'll see what happens. But like Dan was alluding to that's right. Go on. I was going to say, Sat, that's a, that's, the number one priority for me for the Canucks this offseason, mm-hmm. fixing the back end. Yeah. And it's it's not just at the upper reaches of it. It's from one to six, mm-hmm. one to seven. It just needs to be better top to bottom. And I think that's really what is holding the Canucks back from being a playoff team as currently constituted. Yeah, that and a third-line center, and then maybe go time, but <laughs> a lot easier said than done. It's proved to be, especially this past year or so here for this organization. But on the salary cap, like I- I'm unconvinced, Frank, that the league is going to stay at a million-dollar bump for next year. You know, it's clear the other teams want it. It's clear that the, the league needs to have the salary cap be a little bit higher. The question is, what does the NHL want in return for it to happen? Yeah, I think that's what they're in the process of figuring out. I'm with you. I I think that it's, you know, even just listening to Gary Bettman speak that the cap is is only going to increase by a million. It was kind of like, no offense to the reporters on the ground, but they kind of just accepted it as gospel. And I'm listening, sort of having been through a bunch of these press conferences and, and, and a couple lockouts to hear with kind of a trained ear of like, this is a negotiating tactic. This is Gary Bettman throwing red meat at the players saying, man, are we sure we want the cap to only increase by a million? Are we doing the right thing? What's going on here? The NHL PA and the NHL met about 10 days ago. And I can tell you that sources indicate that they had a discussion then looking at a bunch of different proposals and scenarios modeling stuff out that $3 million increase was one of the things that was on the table. 
And what the NHL wants in return, in part, is for the escrow cap to increase. Um, they it's it's contractually obligated to to remain at at a low number. Uh, based on the way the CBA was negotiated out of the pandemic because no one really envisioned that the debt would be paid off this quickly. Here's the thing, though. Because the cap is still artificially low as it is, meaning it's not relinked to revenue yet, but will be next season, there's a way to increase the cap without worrying about or touching that escrow cap. And in return the league has been saying, well, we, we don't know what's going on with Bally sports and the 12 regional networks that they have there. That's a major cause for concern for a decrease in revenue next season. But this year they're getting close to numbers that they didn't have as imaginable in $6 billion. That plus future growth to me should be a no brainer as to why this cap should be going up. No one wants to get to one year from now and have an $8 million one-time increase because they didn't properly smooth this out. Can you imagine the headaches that owners will have to deal with four years from now, five years from now on contracts given out next summer because of an $8 million increase? It'll be a bonanza for players, but I think players are good either way. Like I think there's going to be more money flowing into the system no matter what after this really tough circumstance with the debt these last few years. So to me, there's a lot of nuance to it. Uh, There's a lot of... Uh, wrangling and negotiating and we'll see this is a great first test for marty walsh to see what his chops are like to go toe-to-toe with gary bettman yeah nobody wants like the uh, timofey mozgov or uh, bismack biombo <laughs> contracts that were <laughs> happening in the nba when their uh when their salary cap went up a ton in one one off season it uh it, it could be tricky right because then uh, you're gonna have some of those overinflated contracts in that one summer when it happens um you know, a couple of big stories uh, today coming out. Cole Caulfield signing the eight-year extension with Montreal. And uh, probably the juicier one from a hot stove perspective is is Alex Dabrinkat and the uh, Ottawa Senators exploring the trade market for a player they traded for at last year's draft. Uh, what's your read on on just how serious the Senators are about potentially moving Dabrinkat right now? Well, I, I think they're going to have to um, really – first off, like, I want to know who's running the – Ottawa Senators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's really the biggest thing. Like, Pierre Dorian can remain as confident as he wants and can go about business as usual until there's a decision made. But I, I remain less con- less than convinced and and pretty skeptical that he'll be the man in charge, first off. So how does that impact things? But there was always the writing on the wall of this potentiality because they traded for a player and didn't get an extension done in short order that this could play out the way that it has, which is you have an American who's a highly touted player who's due a a qualifying offer. That's pretty restrictive in terms of your, your overall salary cap. And that's why this trade really needed to be um, viewed appropriately in terms of a risk factor. Like they gave up a lot to get this guy And he's a talented player, but to put themselves in the same situation as Matthew Kachuk, essentially with the Calgary Flames, one year ago, Mm -hmm. it's an ugly spot to be in after giving up the number seven overall pick plus a second and a third. Like, that's a tough spot. And so to think that, you know, okay, so let's even game this out further. And let's say that the Sens 
are able to re-sign to Brinkett, and he he loves what they're building in Ottawa and is willing to play in Canada, and they're able to hammer out a long-term extension. The question for me is, how many players making $8 million can you afford? You've got Stutzla, Brady Kachuk, Thomas Shabbat, Josh Norris. Now you're going to add in a fifth? All of a sudden, you're beautiful cap situation that you had and all these young players that you're excited about. Yeah. Some of them are taken care of long-term, but you run into a situation, not all that different than the core four in Toronto or what pick another really tough spot where you've got a lot of cap and a committed to a top heavy roster. So, you know, you're right about that. And my big question here is like, you know, we were kind of talking about this in the first segment about to and, and ultimately what might happen. And, uh, they're not going to get what they gave up for him, right? They're not getting the seventh overall pick, 39th overall pick, and a third rounder back to get to Brinkett, who has one year left, who's going to get paid, all coming off a, a bit of a down year for his standards. They're not getting what they gave up for him. So what makes more, most sense to me is a bit of a hockey deal, one for one for another young player or a guy in a situation. But the bigger question to me is, are they even allowed to add salary right now? So if they're making to Brinkett trade, is the are they allowed to make a deal for a player who has term? Are they allowed to make that type of swap, or are they looking to just get rid of the money and then let the new owners figure it out? And, and that's kind of my big question about Dabrinkit, because I don't see a pathway where they're going to get draft capital back that makes sense for them. Yeah, I agree with you, and I don't know the answer. I would think that given the issues that they had at the deadline specifically, it's a lot further down the track now with the next owner, and maybe you could just have a blanket statement that you essentially have all four prospective bidders since it is so deep in the process, and you know who they are, sign off to give them the green light to do whatever is necessary. However, would you do that if you're a prospective bidder knowing that you might not be keeping this GM anyway? Like, do you mm-hmm. really want him pulling... like? This is, this is what adds urgency to get this done. Like, this has lingered on forever. I don't know what the hangups are. We've been talking two-plus weeks now that we were supposed to find out who this prospective bidder is, and to think that it might drag on for a couple more, it almost puts the team in an untenable spot to have to get business done in such a critical fashion and juncture. Like, no one... No one wants to do this with a gun to their head saying, let's figure out what we're doing with the Brinkett or else. Yeah, it's it's a tough spot uh, for, for Ottawa right now and, and where they end up. And certainly everyone's walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happening with the ownership situation right now? I, I don't know where I, I believe we're in a holding pattern. I think this has gone on so long that obviously there's lots going back and forth between not just these prospective ownership groups and the bankers, but also at times, even between the prospective ownership groups and themselves. Like, I, I think there's been varying conversations between the groups at different points. Should we join forces? Uh, what would this look like if we were to consolidate? Uh, there's been lots of talks like that. Um, I don't know where it's heading. I don't, I don't think that's a likely option. I would think that... Th- you know, they all sort of remain distinct and separate, but this is a complicated deal. It's an unprecedented deal because you're dealing with a small market Canadian team that earns its, you know, revenue in, in Canadian dollars and has most of its biggest expenditures in U S dollars that I, I have a hard time really justifying 
from a purchase perspective, how this could possibly make business sense for whoever this new owner is. If we're talking about the type of, of level deal that we have seen reported $1 billion us plus it's, it's a lot of money to try and make the money go, uh, just from a business case. But look, these assets have appreciated in such an amazing way. And it's been such a financial boon for tax write-offs loss wise for these owners that it's, you know, it's almost become let's race to the bottom to get in. I just, the fact that it's gone on this long, I think has been really surprising. It has. And, you know, you know, my favorite soccer team was sold last year in the middle of the season, Chelsea, during because, you know, Roman Abramovich was Russian owner and they squeezed him out because mm-hmm. of the UK, Ukraine conflict and everything. And they expedited that deal and they got that done in three months. Right. But when they when they agreed on who the seller was, it still took like a month for it to get finalized. I don't see a world where this is going to be finalized. They'll have figured out who the GM and everything is by July 1st. It just doesn't logistically make any sense. Right. Well, so, that's so sad. Like, here's one thing I've been thinking about is. It's possible to announce who the prospective winner is. Now, can they turn over day-to-day control of the operations on a good faith gesture to that person in a timely manner, essentially hand over the keys before it's finalized by the board of governors, things like that, so that these important changes can be made? I'd have to think that that's on the table. I just don't know what the appetite is like for that to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. I did want to get in one thing on on Cole Caulfield because you know it's there's not too much to debate here about the contract. He's probably going to live up to it. You know, we see with a lot of these second contracts that end up being eight year deals, they feel expensive maybe at first, but you know if the player pans out, it ends up being a value contract. Um, however, I wonder if there becomes a time, Frank, where. Uh, players like Caulfield are just more comfortable taking a shorter term deal and, you know, betting on themselves to, to wait for the salary gap to open up a little bit more and then get your bigger contract later down the line or just have consecutive short term deals. And, you know, sort of like it happens in the NBA where guys sign four year contracts and they just keep coming up for new renewals and they're getting paid over and over and over again. Do, do you see a time in hockey where that happens? Um, I, 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 I thought it was happening when Austin Matthews and company signed their deals in Toronto and it just, everyone has a different risk profile. Like it's so hard to walk away from the security. Like someone is literally putting in front of you $63 million. Yeah. And if you sign five years, how much does the club whack that number? Because they don't want to be in a spot exactly like what you're talking about where they have to pay more in short order because you took off. So, you know, instead of looking at 63 million bucks, maybe they're offering you, I don't know, uh, 35 on a five year deal. And you're all of a sudden they're sitting there have to having to weigh and you go, Holy smokes. I'm 22 years old. I'm, Five foot seven. I just spent half of my season injured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I haven't played 125 games in the NHL yet. What happens if, you know, three years into this deal, I have massive shoulder problems 
and I'm not going to make it to the end of the deal to get another one. Yeah. I just left 30 some million dollars on the table. Not to say Cole Caulfield wouldn't be, I'm just giving you hypothetical, but not to say Cole Caulfield wouldn't be well taken care of in terms of his, his future finances at 35 million bucks. But that's a huge difference. So that's where the calculus comes in. And I, I'm with you. Like I absolutely love this deal from the team perspective. You've now got him under contract. It's so much easier to do this when you have a guy right at the top of your pay scale that you're like, Hey, we love you, but we're not paying you more than Nick Suzuki. It's sort of like the conversation that once the Buffalo Sabres got Tage Thompson done, they could go back to Dylan cousins and say, we love you, but we're not paying you one dime more than what Tage Thompson got. So you have to get in line. And it, it creates this internal team salary cap structure that I think is so beneficial for the team. And you look at Caulfield and Suzuki now, they've, they've now purchased every best year of that player available from age 22 to 30. And the way that this cap is projected to increase we're talking about a $100 million salary cap probably in three to four years. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, you're, you're basically going to be paying these guys what is now second to third line money in percentage of cap hit. And the risk profile for the team is really kind of minimal. First off, the NHL in, mandates and enforces that you insure this contract and, and – so in case of injury, you not only get LTIR relief, but you also get 80% of that paid by insurance. God forbid he is hurt and is unable to play. And the upside is you have a guy that scored 45 goals in his 83 games played under Marty St. Louis. He seems to have been able to unlock him. It's a no-brainer. Uh, Frank, we appreciate the time as always. Enjoy the game tonight. Have a good one, guys. Uh, there is Frank Valley joining us here on Canuck Central and our weekly NHL insider every single Monday. He's brought to you by Angry Otter Liquor, your game day destination. Visit their 28 locations from Vancouver to Kamloops. The legendary Don Taylor is next on Canuck Central.